Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Public Policy. This is Sean Hamilton, your host. Our guest today is Mark Maurer, and he is the author of a new book entitled Race to Incarcerate. It's a graphic retelling of a book that he authored uh, several years ago. Uh, Mark, welcome. Hi, it's good to be here. Great. Thank, thank you for, for joining us. Um, I guess, Mark, tell us a little bit about your background and like the origins of the book. Sure. Well, I'm the executive director of the Sentencing Project, which is a national nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C., and we're engaged in research and policy advocacy on a broad range of criminal justice issues. Um, back in 1999, uh, I published the first edition of this book, Race to Incarcerate, uh, then did a second edition in 2006, and now this year, with the aid of my collaborator, Sabrina Jones, who's a graphic illustrator, we decided to put out the book uh, in a very different format, a graphic novel format, to basically tell the story of mass incarceration, but do it in a different way than the original book did. Got you. And now, what, what made you guys try that, that approach? Well, it was interesting. Uh, when the second edition was um, issued in 2006, we had a uh, grant to do some free dissemination of the book to prisoners and community groups, and we sent out quite a few copies. We got a nice response, and several years later, uh, I got a package in the mail from a prisoner in Connecticut who had been one of the recipients of the book, and he's an illustrator himself. He had taken the book and started to do several pages of comics telling the story of race to incarcerate and I got that and I said well this is pretty cool and I sent it off to my editor and she said that was very cool too and she said why don't we make this into a graphic novel and and tell the story that way Um, you know we were not able to work directly with the prisoner uh, because of logistics of uh, getting things in and out of prison and the like although we, we were able to incorporate one of his illustrations in the book um, but that's when we reached out uh, to Serena Jones to uh, to collaborate on that. And, you know, I, I think I'm very proud of the, the, the text editions of the book. But uh, as I mentioned, this is another way to tell the story and to reach uh, hopefully some broad audiences. Sure, sure. Talk a little bit about the origins of the, the penitentiary system. Well, you know, it goes back uh, 200 years, um, and, you know, the uh, idea at the beginning uh, was that the penitentiary system was a reform, you know, compared to the colonial period when the death penalty was used frequently, when people were put in the stocks and whipped and banished from the community. Um, Along came some religious reformers in Pennsylvania, and said there must be a different way to do things. So they established the penitentiary from the word penitence. And the idea at the time was that you would take this group of people who were viewed as sinners, um, keep them in this institution, provide them with a Bible or have somebody read the Bible to them. And through penitence, they would become better people, repent for their sins. 
the problem with that, among other things, was that, you know, it was essentially a form of, uh, you know, solitary confinement, and that's, you know, not a very healthy situation for anybody, you know, whether or not one is a religious person, and uh, doesn't usually produce very good results. But that was the idea behind the experiment, and, you know, what's um, surprising and I think disturbing is that over the course of 200 years, um, you know, in many ways that model hasn't changed that much. We still have these very large institutions, record numbers of them, uh, put people in these prison cells in often very difficult circumstances and don't provide nearly enough in terms of support to address the uh, circumstances that contributed to their being there. Um, and then we see the results of those policies, and it's usually not a very uh, encouraging outcome. Right, right. And now, when when did we start using the term mass incarceration? When did that begin? Well, you know, the explosion in the prison population goes back to the early 1970s. Um, I think at the time, no one could have really predicted uh, what would happen, but just to give a sense of what it looks like, there were about a little over 300,000 people in prison and jail in 1970. Today, there are over 2 million people behind bars, so we've added nearly 2 million additional people uh, behind bars to the point where the United States has become the world leader in its rate of incarceration. We lock up a greater proportion of our citizens than any other nation does. Uh, and it seems to me there's something very troubling about that, uh, that distinction. Um, you know, whether one believes that uh, high rate of incarceration is due to individual failings or societal failings, uh, in either case, um, you know, for a society as wealthy as the United States, one that prides itself on its democratic traditions, um, this is not a very pretty picture that we've created through these changes in policy over four decades now. And now, why were federal sentencing commissions created? How, How did that contribute to this? Well, sentencing commissions um, take place. Uh, the, the number of states have commissions that have often adopted sentencing guidelines, policies. At the federal system, a sentencing commission enacted guidelines that went into effect in 1987. Um, you know, sentencing commissions, sentencing guidelines, uh, you know, can be good or bad depending on your point of view and depending on what they do. It's, you know, I think the sentencing policies that are enacted, whether it comes through a commission, whether it comes through the legislature, um, you know, are really are driving the policies we've seen. And, you know, in large part, since the 1980s in particular, uh, legislative bodies, uh, you know, across the country, um, through the Get Tough movement, have you know helped to expand the system tremendously. And basically, two very simple ways of doing it: one is to send more people to prison on uh, record numbers, and also to keep them in prison for longer periods of time. So policies like mandatory sentencing, three strikes and you're out, life without parole. Uh, 
have all greatly expanded uh, both the numbers of people in prison and how long they spend in prison, you know, and what we've seen is that mass incarceration has not primarily been a function of a dramatic rise in crime, but rather conscious changes in policy um, with those outcomes very much in mind. Mm-hmm. And so just... Uh jump ahead a, a little bit. So I think in the early 90s, we started seeing a drop in violent crime, if I remember correctly. That's correct. And now that, but that didn't correlate with incarceration rates, right? Right. Um, what, what's intriguing is that both violent crime and property crimes have been declining from beginning in the early to mid-90s, so, you know, 15 years or more now. And ordinarily, of all things being equal, one would imagine that, you know, as the number of crimes is declining, we should have seen a decline in the prison population as well. And for the most part, that has not been the case. Um, I think much of that is due to the impact of these sensing policies, you know, the growing numbers of people serving life without parole or serving a three-strike sense of 25 years to life, things like that um, mean that, um, you know, we're keeping people for so long that the decline in crime has not had a chance, an opportunity to start producing reductions. Uh, we're finally seeing in the last several years some um, at least modest declines in the prison population nationally. Uh, there are actually a couple of states, New York and New Jersey, that have experienced a 25% decline over the last decade. So, you know, it demonstrates, I think, that it is quite possible to reduce prison population substantially, but it takes very focused attention, focused commitment by uh, political leaders to make that happen. Mm-hmm. And now, what? Um, talk a little bit about the relationship between the, the war on drugs and, and mass incarceration. Yeah. Well, there's probably been no single policy that's been more influential in contributing to mass incarceration than the war on drugs. Um, you know, the scale of it is such that uh, 1980, there were about 40,000 people in prison or jail for drug offense. Today, that figure is 500,000. So... There are more people locked up for a drug offense than the entire prison and jail population uh, in 1980. That's the scale of the drug war. And, you know, we know from lots of research evidence that the vast majority of these people are not the so-called kingpins of the drug trade. Um, They're either drug users or frequently lower mid-level people in the drug trade. So Mm -hmm. the street corner sellers, the so-called couriers or mules, um, not the people who are, you know, uh, flying in drugs by the plane load from South America or things like that. And, you know, one of the many problems with that is that when you incarcerate, you know, tens of thousands of people who are in the lower levels of the drug trade, um, those people are very easily replaced on the streets after you arrest them and send them off to prison. 
So, um, you know, by doing that, you know, we've expanded the prison population tremendously, but we haven't necessarily had an impact on the drug trade. You know, that corner where somebody was just picked up, um, you know, by the end of the evening, somebody else is probably going to step up to try to take advantage of that economic opportunity. So unless we do something about the demand for drugs or reconsider a whole strategy, um, you know, we've spent enormous amounts of money, uh, enormous costs in human lives, um, but relatively little to show for it in terms of uh, the drug problem in some communities. Mm-hmm. And now, I don't know if you would go talk about this in your book, but do you know what percentage of um, prisoners have a drug addiction? Well, the research generally shows us that about three-quarters of the people in prison have some history of drug or alcohol abuse. Uh, you know, some of them, and maybe in the past, many of them, it's currently uh, the case. Um, you know, we also know that that's often a contributing factor to their engagement in crime, uh, which could be, uh, you know, stealing property in order to get money to buy drugs, uh, or in the case of alcohol, there's a high association with violent behavior. So, you know, the toll of substance abuse is very substantial. Um, some of these people have been in treatment. Many of them have not or have not been in programs that have been very effective. And, you know, I think it points to, uh, you know, what we should be thinking about if we wanted to try to prevent some of these behaviors in the first place, uh, where we might start to be looking at that. Mm-hmm. Is there any kind of consistent approach in the in sort of the prison industrial complex to uh, treating alcohol abuse or drug addiction uh, mm-hmm. of of inmates? Well, there's beginning to be a shift in in political consciousness and public environment on this. Uh, you know, when it comes to drug abuse, uh, starting about 1990, uh, we've had the inception of what are called drug courts, and these are based on a pretty simple concept, which is um, why don't we try drug treatment as a first option rather than prison as a first option if substance abuse is really the underlying problem. Um, So now, by some counts, there are more than 2,500 such courts around the country, uh, and these are operated more on a problem-solving model. So basically, who needs to be in treatment, what kind of treatment is going to be most responsive to their needs, um, and to have the judge and others in the court system sort of working with the defendant to try to have a successful treatment experience, basically. Now, uh, not everybody succeeds at treatment the first time around. Relapse with people who are substance abusers is very common. It's part of the process. Um, but the research to date shows us that people who complete drug courts, drug treatment successfully, uh, are going to have lowered rates of involvement in crime, lowered rates of going back to using drugs. Um, so it can be both more cost-effective uh, and certainly more compassionate to to try different approaches like this. Mm-hmm. And now, how, how, do you know how many 
states approximately have drug courts or use drug courts now? Well, virtually every state has some type of drug court, and some of them have quite a few. Um, the problem, though, is that, um, you know, the resources for, you know, quality treatment are often pretty limited. Um, also, too many of the drug courts um, establish criteria that um, may not result in actually diverting people from prison. So, for example, um, you know, you could have uh, uh, an 18-year-old kid who gets arrested for possessing marijuana and put him through a drug court and see what kind of results you get. Um, you know, but that kind of case is probably not going to go to prison anyway uh, in those circumstances. So, you know, the treatment may or may not be appropriate in that case, but unless we target some of these interventions to really trying to uh, reduce the use of imprisonment, um, you know, we may not be spending our, our resources very uh, wisely. Mm-hmm. And now in your research, did you see did you see a change in, say, the number of plea bargains that I know that's become a big part of, of, um, mm-hmm. of you know, the uh, I guess law enforcement? How, how has that changed over the years? Well, um, the vast majority of guilty plea, guilty cases come about as a result of plea bargains these days. And, you know, a lot of that is related to sort of issues of efficiency. You know, if everybody demanded a trial, the, the system would break down. And for the plea negotiation process, it's a, you know, a bargaining session of sorts between the prosecution and defense. And it's based on, you know, how much evidence there is, what the penalties are, what both sides are willing to offer. So um, one thing that's changed in that process, though, is that because of the adoption of so many mandatory penalties that cover a lot of different crimes, um, you know, the power of the prosecutor to induce a plea bargain to what they would like to see has become much greater now. Uh, You know, if you can threaten somebody with, we're going to give you 25 to life on a three-strike sentence, um, you know, you whether or not you think you're guilty or they can prove it, um, you know, if they say, uh, we'll allow you to plead guilty to five or ten years, uh, but if you go to trial, you may be looking at 25 to life. So the, the power relationships have really shifted in many ways, um, and generally speaking, you know, putting more, uh, more of a hammer, in, a larger hammer in the hands of the prosecutor that... Um, you know, often results in both more people going to prison and, and longer sentences on top of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now, how have, have private prisons impacted mass incarceration? Well, I don't think private prisons are the main reason or the only reason of mass incarceration, but they're certainly contributing to that. Uh, private prisons came on the scene in the mid-1980s and have grown substantially, so there's more than 100,000 people today who are locked up in a private prison. Um, you know, in some respects, uh, they've helped mass incarceration because they made it easier for states to expand their prison populations. Uh, you know, if a state wanted to think about building new prisons uh, to put more people away, well, it's expensive, it's expensive to build prisons, whereas when it comes 
opposed to private prisons, basically they can sort of rent out cells and do it that way so they can avoid some of those upfront costs and therefore it makes it easier for them uh, to engage in this. Um, you know, the private prison operators have come to the states, the federal government, saying, well, we can do it cheaper, more efficiently than the state-run prisons. Um, the research does not show that that's the case. You know, occasionally it's a little less expensive, occasionally more expensive. Most of the time it's, it's roughly the same. Um, and, you know, here we are taking over a you know, substantial function of government and turning it over to a profit-making entity. And, you know, it seems to me there's something fundamentally wrong with that, that um, making a profit off of depriving someone of their liberty, uh, you know, has become the reason for existence there. There's, you know, that, that's not a good situation. Mm-hmm. And now, do you do you in your research do you see any sort of difference between the the private prisons' approach to rehabilitation and that of a of, of a public or government run prison? Well, it varies a fair amount, and you know it's not as if the public prisons are doing such a great job on rehabilitation themselves. Um, you know, I think there's. Uh, in the public prisons, there's uh, there are many leaders in corrections and wardens and all who would like to do more in prisons, but you know the legislature may give them money to build prisons, but they don't give them very much money to do programming in prisons. So that's that's a real problem there. And the private prisons, um, you know, beholden to their stockholders, and uh, you know their obligation is to try to make a profit. So you know it does mean that there's a tremendous incentive to cut their costs. So they may um, not do as much training of prison guards. They may have less experienced people, pay them less, uh, do only, you know, modest programming, you know, any ways that they can save money, um, you know, should uh, work to the benefit of their stockholders if that's their goal. So uh, it doesn't mean that this is always the case, but, um, you know, when you have incentives like that, uh, it would not be surprising that, you know, this is how they go about uh, considering, um, you know, what their programming is going to look like. And now, so so mass incarceration itself, you know, sort of begins um, in the 1970s. Do you see much of a difference between um, Republican administrations and Democratic administrations just at at the presidential level? Well, um, not terribly much, actually, because, you know, we've seen um, both parties, both the presidential level and in the states, uh, frequently supporting policies that have contributed to this outcome. Um, you know, in the 1980s, the Reagan-Bush administration, you know, really sort of launched the war on drugs. Um, and when the Democrats were in office, uh, the, the Clinton years, uh, Bill Clinton pushed a federal crime bill in 1994 that was largely loaded with money for prisons, law enforcement, had a federal three strikes in your out policy, expansion of the death penalty. Um, and so we've seen that, you know, over many years now. Now, you know, to be fair, you know, both Democratic and Republican administrations have, you know, enacted some policies and provide some funding for programs that either try to prevent crime or engage in rehabilitation in prison and the like. Um, 
but we haven't seen any sort of substantial challenge to mass incarceration, basically trying to take on the sentencing policies and other policies that are really, um, you know, contributing to these record levels. And now, can you can you just just um, explain the change in in um, crack crack law, crack sentencing over over the years between the eighties and now? Sure. Well, the federal crack cocaine penalties uh, initially started in Congress in 1986. Um, you know, crack cocaine was a new drug that had just uh, come on the market, and uh, there was a lot of what we now know was sort of mythology about the impact of the drug. And, and crack cocaine is a bad drug, as is powder cocaine, many others. Um, but Congress, in a real rush to do something, enacted these very harsh laws that penalized crack cocaine uh, far more harshly than powder cocaine. And, you know, basically, these are two forms of the same drug. Crack cocaine is produced from powder cocaine and mixed with some baking soda and cooked. Um, So there was what's been called the 100 to 1 disparity between the drugs. Um, You know, if you had 5 grams of crack cocaine, you get a mandatory five years in prison. That's the weight of about two pennies. Uh, but for powder cocaine, you wouldn't get that same five years unless you were selling 500 grams of the drug. That's about a pound. So mm-hmm. between the 500 and the five, we have this 100 to 1 disparity in the drug quantity that impose a mandatory sentence. Um, there have been lots of uh, critique, lots of challenge to those policies, and finally in 2010, uh, we gained bipartisan support in Congress to reduce that disparity from 100 to 1 down to 18 to 1. Mm-hmm. So, uh, from my perspective, it's so unfortunate that there's any disparity, but nonetheless, it was a substantial change, and you know, large numbers of people are benefiting who are receiving sentences for crack cocaine now that are not quite as severe uh, as they would have uh, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now, are you seeing a similarity between the treatment of, um, of meth in the media as, as crack, as to crack in the 80s? Well, there are many similarities now, um, you know, certainly in, uh, you know, talking about the dangers of the drug and in many uh, states, the federal government adopting very harsh penalties. And, you know, here, too, you know, methamphetamine has done bad things to many people. But, um, you know, enacting tough penalties that take away discretion from judges that don't necessarily provide the appropriate level of treatment resources, um, you know, can be very problematic. Um, you know, in this case, you know, the, the the main difference probably are just the racial dynamics. When it was crack cocaine, about 80% of the defendants were African-American. Uh, for the meth prosecutions, it's far more likely to be whites or Latinos. But the, the overall problem of, you know, harsh sentences uh, for drug offenders, um, you know, continues to this day also. Mm-hmm. And now, one uh, another thing, I don't know if you cover this in, in your book either, but I know a lot of communities are dependent on 
um, prisons for for jobs. For example, in uh-huh. upstate New York, there were certain communities where, uh, 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 I mean, in fact, politicians would go out and, and sometimes campaign on their ability to bring prisons to communities for, uh-huh. for jobs, basically. Are, how does that contribute to mass incarceration or, or does it? Yeah, well, it's, it's a substantial contributor. Um, you know, it used to be the case, you know, a generation ago or so, where, you know, if the corrections commissioner came to rural towns and I want to build a prison here, they would have tried to run them out of town. We don't want a prison here or anything. Um, since the 1980s, though, you know, a lot of these rural communities have lost, you know, their main as the way out of this problem, or so they believe. And so they've, in many cases, been actively lobbying governors and state legislators to build a prison in their community uh, to create some jobs. Now, the what we know is that, in fact, it, it often doesn't work for them. Uh, you know, the people who get the jobs in the town may not be the ones who live there, maybe other people commuting, so they're not necessarily buying houses and uh, spending money on restaurants and entertainment in the town. They just sort of come and go. Uh, it's also, you know, potentially a problem if a town becomes known as a prison town. It doesn't sound like the kind of place that, you know, uh, business owners might want to locate there or you want to take a vacation in or things like that. So mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, it hasn't really produced those benefits, but, you know, the rural communities that uh, don't have many other options have come to see this as a way to do, uh, believe they can get jobs. And then, you know, in states that are beginning to think about closing down some of their prisons because the population is declining, um, it becomes very difficult to close these prisons because you have this sort of institutionalized resistance to doing that also. So, you know, the whole system, you know, has become dependent on this in a lot of uh, strange ways that, um, you know, just contributed to this world record prison population. Right. Right, and now with with crack, but uh, probably other sentencing disparities. You obviously you mentioned race being a being a, a factor or something that just jumps out at most most people. Ha, in in your research, did you did you see a, a a change over the years in the perception of prisons as um, as more and more African Americans were arrested or became prisoners? Well, I think. Yeah, I think it's very difficult to distinguish, you know, the sort of racial assumptions and perceptions of the system with, you know, the mass incarceration itself. Um, you know, I think um, as, you know, the image of a criminal or the image of a person in prison is often that of a young black male, um, I think far too often the way that the problem gets approached is a very narrow one, a very punitive one. and. You know, again, the the example of the crack cocaine penalties, um, you know, that was very much the image in the 1980s. You know, a black teenage male or sometimes female was, the, the, whether or not that was correct, that was a popular image of that. And I think that helps to explain why Congress acted so quickly and in such a harsh manner, essentially, in looking at the issue. Um, you know, when it comes to substance abuse, we know that that cuts across lines of race, gender, and class across the country, and yet 
we have you know what's called a war on drugs, but I think it's really uh, two different kinds of wars. When it's in you know communities with resources, uh, you know if parents find out their son or daughter has a drug problem, they don't call up the police, but they call up their friends who are social workers and they say, you know, uh, help me find a good treatment program for my kid. Um, when it's in low-income communities, we may not have those same resources available, and so. Uh, people instead call 911, and then, you know, we, we use police and prosecutors and prisons to deal with the problem. So it's often a very similar problem, but uh, we may address in very different ways depending on, um, you know, what kinds of resources families and communities bring uh, to that situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now, you, in your book, you retell the story of Kemba Smith. Can, can you just tell that story for us? Yeah, Kemba Smith uh, came from a middle-class African-American household in Virginia, um, very loving, supportive parents. Uh, she went off to college, and she made one big mistake in life, and that was she fell in love with the wrong guy who turned out to be a, a very big-time drug dealer. Um, you know, on some occasions, she aided his dealing in some very modest ways. You know, she he may have given her a pass package uh, containing drugs, and she got on the bus and went from City A to City B to deliver the package, but, you know, that was, you know, the worst that she might have done. She was certainly not in any kind of leadership position. Um, in the course of her boyfriend's drug dealing, he ended up becoming, getting killed himself, and then when the federal law enforcement agents caught up with Kemba Smith, they charged her as if she had been head of this drug ring that was the boyfriend's. Uh, she had no arrest prior to that first offense, but she was charged with this major drug operation and the federal mandatory penalties applied. So she was sentenced then to 24 years in prison. Um, her She was pregnant at the time uh, this took place and uh, gave birth <clears throat> shortly after going to prison. Uh, her son had to go live with his grandparents who raised him for the first number of years. Uh, so she was looking at 24 years with no chance of getting out uh, before serving 85% of her sentence. And she became sort of a model prisoner and received a lot of attention. And fortunately for her, she was one of a handful of people who received a commutation of sentence from President Clinton just in the uh, last month of his being in office. So she ended up serving six and a half years in prison, still a very long time. Um, she came out, she <clears throat> went to law school, she got remarried, um, you know, is seemingly on a path to, a, you know, a very good lifestyle now, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, took a, took a real toll in her and, and her whole family in the process. Right, right. She, I, I think she went to my college. Um, okay. So, yeah, before I, before I got there. Mm-hmm. What, 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 what change in incarceration rates for women for black women did you see in your research? Well, um, you know, we, we've seen a couple different trends. Uh, you know, first, beginning in the 80s, the, the increasing rate of incarceration for women has been even faster than has been for men, rising mm-hmm. at a quicker rate. Um, and much of that, you know, uh, has been due to the drug war, even more so for men. Um, 
you know, women have never committed a high proportion of violent offenses, uh, but once the number of drug arrests expanded so dramatically, uh, women were caught up in, in that as well. And, you know, very often it may have been their first experience in the justice system. They may have been less sophisticated about the court process, or they may not have been uh, the same kind of alternatives to incarceration in some cases that were available to men. Uh, so we saw, you know, very high increases when going to prison, particularly women of color, which had to do with where law enforcement was making its arrests. Um, in the last decade or so, research we've just done at the Sensing Project shows that there's actually a substantial reduction now in the number of black women behind bars and conversely a substantial rise in the number of white women. And we don't know all the reasons for that, but it seems to be uh, ongoing changes in drug policy. Uh, and that is in some states uh, like New York and New Jersey, there's conscious efforts to reduce the the drug offender population in prison, um, and since that was so heavily um, consisted of people of color, that any reduction in drug offenders there um, is likely to benefit African American women disproportionately. Uh, among white women, it may be at least to some extent that um, because of the rise in methamphetamine prosecutions, they in some states they may be more subject to some of those increases. So, you know, it's not just how much crime is being committed, but it also has to do with law enforcement and sentencing policy and the like in terms of explaining, you know, who we see in prison and what some of those dynamics uh, have been over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what, what recommendations do you make for, for reform? I think broadly speaking, you know, we've come to look at um, our, um, you know, public safety approach uh, as primarily involving criminal justice and prisons, and I think we've really gotten out of balance by doing that. Um, you know, we need to be looking at is that there's a range of ways to promote public safety. You know, we need healthy families, we need people with economic opportunity and jobs, we need good schools, good mental health programs, and also criminal justice, too. But criminal justice is just one of a number of institutions that we need. So I think broadly speaking, we should be looking for ways to reduce the prison population substantially for people who don't need to be incarcerated, and we should be reinvesting in some of those communities that are most affected by these problems to help prevent and treat these issues in a more proactive way. Um, we also, you know, I think need to shift the war on drugs approach, uh, you know, not rely on incarceration law enforcement, but deal with demand for drugs, treatment for drugs, and the like. Uh, and I think if we shift in those directions, um, it'll be both more cost-effective, but also a much more compassionate way uh, to deal with some of these issues. Mm -hmm. Great, great. And so, uh, last question, what are you working on next? 
Um, well, I'm not writing another book at the moment. <laughs> it's hard to write, but uh, we're trying to work at the federal level with Congress um, where there's actually some possibilities of bipartisan reform possible. I think one of the encouraging changes is that we see people in both major parties now uh, looking more towards, you know, what they would call evidence-based approaches to um, reducing crime. So, you know, it's not so much what's the political soundbite, but, you know, what do we know about programs that have been effective in uh, trying to reduce or prevent crime? And there is a good deal of research and tells us something about, you know, the impact of preschool programming, substance abuse programs, mental health issues, and the like. So we're trying to build on that and see if we can both shift resources and shift some of the sensing policies towards, uh, towards approaches that, you know, would actually uh, reduce crime and not just uh, sound bites that people might use in a political campaign because, you know, that doesn't really get us very far. Well, Mark, thank you so much. I really, I really enjoyed your book. Um, once again, everybody, um, our guest today has been Mark Maurer, and his book is entitled Race to Incarcerate. It's a graphic retelling. Thanks again for, for joining us, Mark. I hope everybody enjoyed. 